This is Annabelle Steele, and you're listening to the Hayseed Scholar from Professor Brent Steele. You may call him Doctor. I just call him Dad. Here's my Uncle Kyle to introduce the show. Recording in studios from Utah to the UK and anywhere in between, you never know where Professor Brent Jameson Steele will be dropping knowledge and bringing you the best guest the universe has to offer. This is the Hayseed Scholar with Mr. Worldwide, my brother, Dr. Brent Jameson Steele. I like that one. Hello, everyone. This is episode two of the Hayseed Scholar podcast. Hope everyone's doing well. This is an interview, a two-part interview with Keen O'Driscoll, a professor from the University of Glasgow, two podcast episodes. So the first 45 minutes kind of cover basically like sort of a biography of Keen, where we talk a little bit about how he got into international relations and how he became interested in it and a little bit about September 11th and the war on terror and some of the things that kind of I feel like uh, propelled our generation into international ethics and then the second episode so that'll be episode three of the Hayseed Scholar podcast talks about a few other things so where do you want to sit i'm happy to stand here are you sure that works for you yeah Yeah. okay um so i am with uh dr kian professor kian o'driscoll of the university of glasgow uh he and i have known one another since we checked today 2007 is that right 2006 i think 2007 yeah okay 2000 right um and then got in Chicago, that's right, and got to know one another um, in the in the months and years uh, following that. But I thought it would be um, fun to chat a little bit about your work, um, but also the background to how you got into um, doing this uh, for sort of a a a living, a, a vocation, <laughs> if you will. Um, so you grew up in Limerick or just outside of Limerick or? Yeah. Um, but before we get to that, I mean, it might be useful for me and just, so who are we, who are we talking to here? So this is, so this is a podcast that I'm trying to put together, um, uh, for, uh, you know, interviewing people maybe once every couple of months or so and um, talking about their kind of their academic origins, a little bit of their work, highlighting a little bit of their current work. And just, I have a fear that this is a little bit like Scientology Vault where you, you gather, you harvest embarrassing uh, compromat from the business, <laughs> no, no. and then you can hold it over. No, you get, you get to edit that. I send you the audio file and you tell me what you, you want to pull out. But I've already, um, you, you're not even going to be the first on the podcast. I interviewed my uh, colleague, Perry Short Shea, for the first one, um, and what are you going to call the podcast? I have a name for it, but I haven't You're not revealed that. It's a big reveal. That's right. because oh. so, I'm still going back and forth on the uh, on it myself. Um, but uh, well, yeah, cool. so that's a little cool bit thing to do, by the way. Yeah, no. Well, it's it's basically just an excuse to kind of shoot the bull with my friends and colleagues and and people I know and um, and one of the I guess one of the ultimate goals of it, if there is one, is going to be. 
Um, to some degree, demystifying, I think, uh, how people get into academia and do research and are interested, especially in international relations and political science, um, because I think we, we have more of a you know, a non-linear route into that. Yeah. Um, and maybe not. Maybe you I think, were... I think there's a, there's a kind of a funny setup there, though, isn't it? And that probably the people who are most approachable to do this kind of... To have a chat like this are the people who possibly aren't as daunting as others, who are yes. a little bit more... And, and, I mean, in a British-European context, you know, I don't know, it's the people who come out of you know, Oxbridge or, you know, and then in the American context, I guess it's Ivy League mm-hmm. and stuff who have been high-flying and who who have the right accents and so on and so forth. You know, they're the really intimidating people. And it'd be, it'd be interesting to converse with a few of them and to see where they come up. Because frequently, yeah, they're just people too. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I do plan to do that because I'm, I mean, if, if I have either one flaw or, or, or virtue, depending on your perspective, it's that I'm pretty comfortable around pretty much anybody. So, um, so I'm planning. I think we could call this the vices and virtues of virtue. <laughs> so that's going to be yeah. <laughs> virtues and um, vices. But you asked me where am I from? So yeah, I'm from Limerick in Ireland in the southwest of Ireland, and mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm actually not from Limerick originally. But you know, I think we moved to Limerick when I was. Five or six, and we lived a couple of. Limerick is a small city of eighty thousand people, but that makes it the fourth biggest city in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And we grew up about. Uh, I grew up about ten miles outside Limerick City in a small village, um, which at that time was I still. Uh, it was still a village which was disconnected from the city, so it was a rural upbringing. Um, uh, Pub- public school. Or I, well, of course, the, those those terms mean different things in the UK and and and, and America. But but in in Ireland, I went to the local primary school, which okay. was essentially farmers, mm-hmm. and um, and then I went to a comprehensive secondary school. So that's anybody can go. Mm-hmm. Now that's uh, so my school was run by the Jesuits, um, and there's about I don't know half a dozen Jesuit secondary schools in the country. Um, and they do place a bit of a premium, I suppose, on academic achievement, but also on rugby. <laughs> and I was never any good at rugby. Um, and I, incidentally, it wasn't competitive to get in. Mm-hmm. It was random, um, r- random admission policy. Um, so, yeah, I, I went to a school called Crescent College Comprehensive in Limerick, and it was, um, yeah, I mean, Limerick's a working-class city, right? Mm-hmm. Limerick is... I'm from a pretty middle class part of, you know, a middle class rural kind of part of, uh, part of Limerick. So you know, I'm not I'm not some working class hero or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but Limerick, you know, Limerick doesn't have room for airs and graces. Um, it's not that kind of place. So it's probably a bit more similar to I don't know parts of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. But there can be a kind of a, you know, there's a sharp humour in Limerick. It's a pretty fast, abrasive kind of discourse. It's, it's a fun town. It's, um, and one of the things we've been joking about in the last couple of years is that there's a number of us from Limerick who are in, who are in the discipline. That's right. And so we were joking on Twitter about the Limerick School because we could pick out about eight, ten people in the discipline who are, you know, in, in kind of mainstream IR today um, who have either taught 
or studied at Limerick. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's you know it's pretty impressive for a small place. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of us, I guess, came through the stable of Luke Ashworth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and was he a professor at Limerick when you were there? Yeah. Or, yeah. So was so it, I was the first year of a program called History, Politics, and Social Studies, which was a kind of a multidisciplinary um, international studies and history program. Oh wow! Um, and it took about forty. 40 students a year and this was uh, University of Limerick had hitherto been mainly a kind of a technical university with focus in engineering, business and some law so this was the kind of their expansion into the humanities, social sciences or social studies as it was called in Limerick Mm -hmm. Um, and it was a really great programme and actually so Luke Ashworth was on faculty um, some of the other members of the faculty are still in Limerick. Luke Ashworth no longer is, mm-hmm. but Luke Ashworth was very hands-on. Uh, Sean Malloy was my tutor in first and second year in UL. Um, so did that mean that Sean was a Sean was a student? PhD student with 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 Luke. Luke that's right. Um, as was Aidan Heher at the time. Uh huh. Um, and then Columba Peoples and Ken McDonough were, I think, the second year of the History, Politics, Social Studies program. Um, Barry Ryan was around uh, yeah mm-hmm. several other people I, I won't list them all because you know you always mm-hmm. leave somebody out but did you know even then that that's what that was the direction you wanted to go in like in, in terms of um, not just the the undergraduate program but moving into um, whether you were there or not moving into a, a, a master's and PhD program eventually and going into no, academia not, not quite um so in secondary school, I took history, and I, I, I enjoyed history and English, and I had a friend uh, called Robbie Gill, who was a little bit more ambitious and aspirational than me, um, and then he used to talk about books and ideas and politics and ideology and history, and he kind of got me interested, and in he challenged me, I guess his example challenged me a little bit, so I took, I was in a history class with him, and I really enjoyed it, I enjoyed kind of chatting about ideology, fascism and the Irish Revolution and this kind of stuff. And so I decided I wanted to do history and history just came packaged with politics. And I'm just noticing you've got a big coffee stain on your jeans. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> nice. Um, I did that yesterday on the way here. So. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> but uh, I took, by the way, sorry if this is really boring for everybody else, but I took, uh, so I went to do history and politics I had to do politics and public administration as minors. So, but my intention really? was to okay. study history. Mm-hmm. And then I just far more enjoyed politics. Well, actually, not initially that mm-hmm. much. I found politics very alienating. I didn't like the political science side of it. Um, I wasn't much interested in the idea that you can study human interactions as a science. And what and was it in at Limerick at the time? Was it kind of conventional social science? I guess a lot the, of us in the U.S. Academy are used to that, but we have a different view of how political sciences may be practiced outside of the U.S. Academy. It was a shock for me. I mean, we had a we had a it was a small politics department um, or so, you know, maybe six faculty and they all did different things so they approached it in different ways so it depended on who you got mm-hmm. um, and some did approach it as straight straight up social science kind of behaviourist stuff if I recall correctly and some were more kind of humanities oriented mm-hmm. um, and the social science stuff 
I, I enjoyed to a degree. I was curious about it, but I was left cold by the first year or two of university because we had these big survey courses, very few contact hours, which I was very happy about, but I also didn't get that involved. I lived at home mm. and I cycled in and out to campus. Oh, and I basically just came in for class and went home. And I, I did a lot of reading. Like I was quite, you know, I wouldn't say conscientious is the right word, but I was anxious that I didn't know what the rules of the game were, so I wanted to work and mm-hmm. I didn't want to get caught out. Um, but when things, I guess, changed for me a little bit is I did an exchange program to the States um, to SUNY New Pulse. Um, oh, really? Okay. And there was eight of us from my program went, me and seven women from my class. And, um, and it was really interesting. Socially, there was all sorts of stuff that was just intriguing for somebody from the west of Ireland mm-hmm. uh, in upstate New York. Uh, and how old would you have been? I was 19 or 20. Had you been to the States before? Uh, once on holidays. Okay. And then... I'd spent a couple of months before that in San Francisco because we did this work exchange mm-hmm. as one semester and then I flipped it over to do a semester in the States. Mm-hmm. So I went across to New York then for the second semester where I okay. went to university. So I'd come from the West Coast, um, uh, US, and then into the, to, to New York. And I'm, I'm looking at your, your CV and I'm trying to place this. So this probably would have been in like maybe 2000, 2001, right around then? Or, or, it was 99. 99, okay. okay. And so um, there I took a class on war um, with a guy called Luz Brownstein. And he was a fantastic instructor. I thought he was great. He was quite intimidating. He was quite robust. How big was the class? Well, this is what's interesting. The class started about 25 people. Um, and it was down to about four or five within about two weeks. Are you serious? And so what we did with that class, yeah. And, and I went with one of my classmates from Ireland uh, with a great woman called Emer O'Leary. And, I mean, it was a case of plucking up our courage before we went in because he would, you know, he would, so to speak, pull your pants down in front of people, no problem. So um, that was... Um, I, I what what we did in that class was we read Walzer's Just and Unjust Wars pretty much from cover to cover. Had you read it before? No, okay. No. So, so that was the, that was the first time that you had. Yeah, and this was a right? very um, discursive class, and he called you on your and and I really enjoyed that. I found myself talking more than I ever had, mm-hmm. and which was quite strange because my experience of American students before that had been they're always more confident and you know ver, uh, verbose. Mm-hmm. Than, than we were back in Ireland. So to be kind of, um, yeah, talking up in that context surprised me. But I found I really enjoyed it. And when I got back to Ireland, I just, I figured out something I liked and I kept coming back to that, mm-hmm. to those topics, to those themes, to that book. And, um, and then it just became a natural thing that, okay, I like this, I like university, I like drinking coffee, mm-hmm. um, I like being on campus. And, and I, I did well enough in my final exams, I guess, that I kind of thought I should stay with it. And and the next the logical next step was to do a master's. So, mm-hmm. And then, then the same thing happened with the master's that, you know, it just kind of, it seemed a natural progression to try and do a PhD. And and at your master's program, which was in Canada, that Dalhousie, is that, or Dalhousie? Dalhousie, yeah. Dalhousie, yeah, that's right. Um, did you, uh, did, did, did you consider um, 
after you were done with your BA of going straight to a PhD program or was it one of the things? Because this is what I did. I, I had a bachelor's and then I just went into a terminal master's program as sort of, I didn't know, mm. I didn't know what I was doing. And so I just was like, well, I just want to continue to stay in college and read books. And Your undergraduate was that? And university, well, I did two years at Drake University, yeah. um, and then uh, my last two years at University of Northern Iowa, which is like the, it's amazing that Iowa has like three public universities, but it does, um, as small of a state as it is. And then I did my terminal master's program at the University of Northern Iowa as well. But what was great about that terminal master's program was that's where I realized, okay, if I do want to do this at the PhD level... Um, I kind of need to get even more serious about it and, you know, figure out particular PhD programs. That and were you, were you already kind of asking unusual questions or were you like in terms of your relationship, say, to social science and mm-hmm. kind of mainstream IR? I think I was, I mean, I think at that time I, I felt like uh, um, I didn't know how uh, big of a fish I was because uh, I don't think I really was a big fish, but it was such a small pond. I mean, it, we're talking a master's program that, you know, maybe admitted five or six people and maybe funded two yeah. or three a year. Um but, you know, compared to a lot of the other master's students who were either just getting a master's degree to enhance um, their marketability for government jobs or yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, think tanks. You didn't have those plans. No, I didn't. So um, so then it, it, I just kind of springboarded into a Ph.D. from there. But it was great because what if I... you diligent back then? Like, how, how did you work? Were you... I was... I mean, they, I, I tell my graduate students this as well. There's absolutely no way... I mean, no way. Five or six years later, like my whole sort of story is so contingent upon time and place because five, you know, even like three or four years later, if I had been looking for PhD programs at that time, you know, when the economy started to go take a downturn, there's absolutely no way I would have gotten to the PhD programs. But it was the late 90s, early 2000s before the the first recession after 9-11. And so... You know, not a lot of people were going to grad schools, yeah. right? I mean, because graduate school is somewhat countercyclical, yeah. and so as a result, I had really kind of mediocre GRE scores. My GPA was pretty good. You know, I could at least work hard to sort of compensate for, I think, a lack of natural intellectual abilities. Mm-hmm. But you know, it was nothing stunning. But I was able to get into decent PhD programs. But the additional thing that the master's degree did, and I was wondering if this, this it doesn't sound like this was the case for you, but for me, it, it gave me. <laughs> Literally, just I think biologically and psychologically, a couple more years to just mature, because I was kind of a you know wannabe dude bro when I got out of college uh, when I you got were. out of my bachelor or yes oh, totally past tense I'm such an intellectual now um, but uh, but it allowed me like just a, a little bit of of smoothing out the rough edges um, whereas I think I mean. Dalhousie is a good university, right? In Canada, I mean, it's a, or at least this master's program. I've well, seen other other like, like you. I got really lucky in terms mm-hmm. of times, right? And I can talk about my first year in the job in Glasgow, which is a case in point. Uh-huh. This. But yeah, Dalhousie, it was actually it was two thousand and one when I started in Dalhousie, and the reason I went to Dalhousie was because Luke Ashworth had done his PhD at Dal. Okay. And so he kind of suggested, hey, why don't you... I said to him I wanted to leave Ireland just because I wanted to do some tourism, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I wanted to go to an English-speaking university environment. And so he said, why not Canada? And Canada did, at that time, they did 
scholarships for master's programs which weren't available in Ireland um, okay. or in the UK so much so mm. and, I, and I just think it was the novelty of the fact that DAL at the time didn't get a lot of international applicants for, for that program um, and I had a reference letter from you know one of their uh, you know graduates yeah most so, successful alums really. yeah, yeah so that was um, and, and so I got, I got this this scholarship which was completely unheard because like you I mean I was you know in cycling terms I was tucked back in the peloton in my undergraduate <laughs> class I wasn't the guy out front right I worked hard for mm-hmm. um, but I got more and more interested and got more and more psychotic in my work practices so that by the time I was doing my masters and I was I presumed I'd kind of look to see how it went and if it went well I'd probably try to do a PhD but I also kind of thought we'll just see where it takes me and so you did have, did you have sort of an exit ramp of an idea no. of what you would do if you didn't do the PhD? No. no. Um, I mean, I, I think I probably thought I'd apply for government jobs or uh-huh. journalism or something like this. But, okay. I, but I didn't, I really didn't. I just, I, I was kind of quite processual in that mm-hmm. I thought, okay, I'll do this and then I'll see and I'll do my best with this. But, and but not, I, I'm not going to act like this is like sort of a universally important moment. No, no, but no, no it happened to me. It yeah. was. Okay, so how, um, so, so this would have happened in the in your first, in your like sort of first year. Well, here's how it went down for me. It was kind of interesting in that I flew to Canada, which was a big move for me. Like, you know, I was 21, 22 and moving away from home for the first time really and I moved over on about the 3rd or 4th of September and had a couple of days of class. And then I always planned to come back for my graduation. Now, just uh, my parents wanted to go to it. My mother was worked in the library in the university where I went. So, you know, it was kind of a family day. So mm-hmm. I said, like we said, okay, I'd fly home for it. So I flew home on, on 9-11. Um, and I think my plane landed in Shannon which is the airport that uh-huh. serves Limerick, um, about uh, half an hour before they closed Heathrow. Wow. And uh, so I went into the unit. It was, got home, just saw all the stuff on the TV. And it was, there's more stuff happened that day. Well, I'll tell you very briefly. I went into the university to collect my gown and stuff for the next day. And the previous... That, that day's graduation was already in process from that morning was, or was taking place. So I was out in the kind of courtyard chatting to some friends and when that graduation concluded and when that ceremony concluded, they all walked out into the courtyard. You see people talking, chatting. Mm-hmm. They, they were turning on their phones and then you could see as they each individually got the message and were kind of talking on their phones and calling people and then going back to the group and saying, I think something has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really interesting watching it move, um, but then Ireland was a rare, was was an unusual case in that Ireland had an official day of mourning for nine eleven on about the fourteenth of September, which was supposed to be my uh, some part of my graduation. So that was pushed back. Uh-huh. My graduation was so I ended up having to fly back. I missed the I missed the graduation stuff anyway, uh-huh. and then. I was actually on the first flight back into New York from Europe. I After think. they opened it back After up. After they opened it back yeah. up. So I flew on about the 14th or 15th of September, sometime around then, and flew into Newark. Mm-hmm. And I was, I've been, we only got the news about three hours, 
five, six hours, I guess, before I left that it was going to go. And I was reassured that my connecting flight to Halifax, which is where Dalhousie mm-hmm. is, was going to go. Um, we got to Newark, hyper nervous flight crew. Mm-hmm. We weren't allowed out of our seats for about the last two hours of the flight. Oh, the whole, wow. um, and we smoking Twin Towers out the windows. Mm-hmm. Um, Could you see them as you were leaving? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we were in the airport for 36 hours because the flights out were cancelled. And there was just people on on cots everywhere, and the Red Cross gave everybody blankets and toothpaste, uh, toothbrushes, and that kind of stuff. Um, and everybody made little. We were in a baggage terminal, so we're kind of at Newark Airport. Yeah, yeah. Oh god. And there for thirty six hours, right, sleeping on this camper bed and jet lagged, and with an old school watch, like a, an analog watch, so not digital, so just mm. the rotary face. So when you woke up with no natural light, and it said three o'clock. And you were jet lagged, and you, is that three p.m. or three a.m.? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. And then we made, you know, but everybody kind of chatted, and it was it was kind of an interesting mm-hmm. experience. And some people had cameras, which the military were coming around and asking, you know, telling them to stop taking pictures. Uh-huh. And, um, so yeah, anyway, eventually I got back to uh, uh, to to Halifax, but yeah, and nine eleven just. And then how did that how did that kind of um, did it impact you intellectually as well in terms of the the research topics you were interested in or would you say that it was more just sort of a background kind of experience that maybe didn't um, no it interested me in terms of the topic because mm-hmm. I think the topic that got me really interested in the just war stuff which is what I work on mostly mm-hmm. was when I'd been in New York that first time in upstate New York um, I had. Uh, been provoked by Walser's treatment of neutrality mm-hmm. and he used Irish neutrality during World War II as a case in point mm-hmm. to kind of suggest this is a country that's freeloading mm-hmm. and that was quite uncomfortable for me to read at that time because neutrality seemed to me to be you know in a very you know intuitive way a morally positive stance mm-hmm. and it was also wrapped up with kind of notions of progressive Irish identity and mm-hmm. this kind of stuff uh, post-colonial Irish identity. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So seeing this, you know, there was a fight between good and evil, World War Two, and Ireland, you know, took the perfidious way out and mm-hmm. so on. I, I found that there was, I found that quite um, challenging. Mm-hmm. So, so fast forward to to nine eleven, and I guess this resumption of this discourse of good and evil. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know. It, and where do you, you're either for us or for against, us, against us, us, yeah. And all of that stuff kind of came back quite quite strong. And I mean, um, yeah, and also there was, you know, fear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and where was this going to go? And what was the world going to look like mm-hmm. after all of this was through? Um, and, you know, don't forget that in September, October 2011, Peggy's Cove mm-hmm. in Nova Scotia, Feared that it was the victim of a terrorist attack, yeah. uh, a chemical weapons attack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sligo Town Post Office in the west of Ireland thought it was, you know, a victim of a terrorist attack. So, you know, there was this kind of just, yeah, corrosive, this, this pandemic of fear. Well, there was, and what people don't, people have sort of, I, I shouldn't say this collectively, but I mean, I think generally people have forgotten 
that, um, I mean, it was interesting. I was in the middle of the country in Iowa at the time uh, in my first year of, well, my first year at Iowa was my second year of PhD. But um, what made people feel vulnerable wasn't necessarily, especially in the middle of the United States anyway, wasn't necessarily the um, the 9-11 attacks. That made people sort of traumatized, I think, and, and sort of, mm-hmm. you know, awake to the possibilities of, of as, as some have called it, violence interdependence. But... What made people feel vulnerable was that there were these actually real anthrax scares throughout the country. And so every single package that had like some kind of powder on it, everyone started sort of saying, well, you know, could this be it? So I didn't even know that that was happening in in Canada as well, this sort of. Uh, paranoid, just they, viable there were some gas masks and the like. No, no, oh gosh. But, but, and of course, I mean, being from Ireland, this wasn't this wasn't a new vocabulary for me because mm. you know, you know, I mean, I'm from the southwest. Limerick is in the southwest, so you mm. don't have any, shall we say, frontline experience of Northern Irish, you know, violence in Northern Ireland. But the language of terrorism, and, right? You know, mm. in fact, where I work in Glasgow, a couple of weeks ago, had uh, Glasgow University was shut down for the day because we received suspicious packages in the mail, oh, which really? were part of that kind of real IRA mm. set of attacks last month, mm-hmm. if you remember. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, kind of these, you know, yeah, strange kind of memories kind of gone, metastasized onto a global kind of level. Yeah, and then, so when you were, um, th- so did you do a, did you do a master's thesis at, at Dahl, or? Yeah, um, and, I, and actually this is, I think this is something that's interesting about Mm. our generation mm. um, I wrote it about humanitarian intervention and the ethics of war yeah um, I'm just, as, I'm just as la- we all did I know I'm just laughing because that was my dissertation too you know? oh and I was very optimistic about it and, you know yeah. it's all Michael Ignatieff Wright's revolution and yeah, we're not <laughs> doing enough we're not, we're not doing enough and, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know we were so right on and then I think our generation is, is quite cynical now in certain ways oh because, absolutely because we bought into this mm. and then it was pushed completely did a 180 yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so your hands you got your hands burnt and it's kind of like oh don't trust the use of force and you know humanitarian is a little <laughs> and, I mean obviously that's generalizing but there was a sense with me that you know like reading I mean it's like watching the West Wing now right you can't believe the idealism oh my god I know and I, I remember being a TA in the spring of 03 for U.S. foreign policy class at the University of Iowa, and and that was like at the sort of at the height of both, you know, the the sort of messianic need to kind of you know invoke just war to save others, in the form of the Iraq War and the West Wing, and I just remember all my undergrads. You talk about popular culture, the theme that's been here at, at our um, at our visit in Warwick, but I mean. They all viewed humanitarian. They all viewed U.S. foreign policy through the language of the West Wing, yeah. right? Um, which is it's it's so idealized and it's so kind of just. I mean, now when you watch it, it's so tacky. But but, but you know, I remember you know. But it's also reflecting my fist in the air at the time. Absolutely, yeah, it's right. so reflective right of where people were at the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you did like there was this moment after the end of the Cold War when you thought, mm-hmm. yeah, we can actually solve some problems, put a bit of elbow grease into it, and mm-hmm. some smart weapons, and a bit of resolution, mm-hmm. a bit of gumption, right? What they'd say in Ireland, moral fortitude, <laughs> and. Uh, you know, and you could do something about it, but yeah, yeah, and the hubris of the moment yeah, as well. Exactly. Um, well, so did 
and and the way that the UK system is set up, so this is like anybody that listens to this podcast uh, that's in like the British system would would just laugh me out of the room for asking such an ignorant question. But I'm fairly certain you had to know. Um, maybe who you were going to work with when you went to Aber, right? Or when yeah. you were applying to Aber, excuse me, when yeah. you were applying to Aber. And Aber, did they still do the um, the uh, the interviews back then? Um, yeah. You had to interview yeah. to get into the program? Yeah. Or, so okay. I took a year out after my master's. Um, I, I in pre, uh, in uh, the, the PRIO in, in Oslo, right? Yeah, um, actually, okay. I can tell about but But the more, I think... What strikes me as slightly more interesting was when I was finishing mm-hmm. my master's, I suddenly kind of got a fluster that, hey, I should be applying for PhDs, and, you know, somebody said I should apply for PhDs, so I need to come up with an idea, and so I, you know, tacked a few things together and sent them off to diff- various places, and I got some kind of encouraging responses, and others said, no, not for us, mm-hmm. but I mean, it was junk, right? Mm-hmm. What I, was, I mean, I was just stitching together something that might look plausible, I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, and in the end anyway I decided I mean and had the decision made for me really that I would sit sit out the year and I would go back and I worked in a you did a, you did like yeah, the, the, the older version yeah of a gap year yeah. 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 well okay. not a gap year because that right. implies that you're travelling and doing oh, that's true. <laughs> I was stacking shelves in a supermarket uh, uh, oh cool uh, in Limerick then in Limerick yeah. oh, no, no kidding and so okay. you got a house with some friends and mm-hmm. kind of set aside a couple of hours every week to kind of keep reading books and have a think about research proposals. And it was funny because my the earlier proposals I thought about writing were about Northern Irish politics. Mm-hmm. I had no interest in that, really. Um, so do you think in the long run it was probably good that you did? It was absolutely good that I didn't get it that yeah. year and that I didn't run. So I was able to sit back. And, and you know just sometimes when you let things sit, you remember you just circle back to what it is that interests you mm-hmm. and so then it's like well why don't I do this mm-hmm. and I was very lucky that the people at Limerick were would still were, were helpful to me Sean Malloy and mm-hmm. um and, and Luke Ashworth were still were still there and mm-hmm. you know give me pointers and and friends who are in the PhD program who'd gone into the PhD program at Limerick were helpful um and I just made a short list of places to go and Aber was among them um in that year and I I kind of, I, I, you know, I had had that moment that, hey, this ethics of war stuff, this really, I want to read more about this. Mm-hmm. Why am I making up ideas when this seems to be what I'm interested in? And with every project I write or everything, I, every essay I ever wrote, I ended up bending it back some way to, mm-hmm. to that stuff. So I kind of, well, okay, let's just do that. Um, and I wrote to... Aberystwyth and went for an interview there and um, that was a really good experience and I met Tony Erskine who would be my mm-hmm. supervisor and uh, uh, Tony was great mm-hmm. um, and she was very welcoming and uh, knew a lot about the subject obviously and it mm-hmm. was uh, yeah, just I didn't think I'd get it mm-hmm. um, but Aberystwyth back in that, that time had a lot of they they threw a lot of studentships out. They, they had a lot of scholarships. So I think. Well, and there was a there was an aura about it back. Then. I mean, I mean, there still is, obviously. Uh, but I mean, I remember then that I mean, Mike Williams was there. Tony was there. Ian Clark. Ian Kendall, Clark, obviously. Nick Kendall, Wheeler. Nick Wheeler. Nick Wheeler. Yeah. Andrew Linklater. Yeah. Jenny Edkins. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And on and on and on. On and on and on. And 
and and then there was also the additional element of um, I think Tony um, Hidemi Sukunami Hidemi, Hidemi was there, and so I think there's there was also like Tony was um, also involved because that was right around the time of my first ISA in Portland in 03. So you would have been would you have been interviewing in 03 or 02? In 03. So yeah. I interviewed just after the, the the same year as the Iraq war had started. Okay. And my PhD was kind of about the Iraq war, so it was you know, yeah. Yeah, and that, and the, the Portland ISA was right around the time of the, the beginning of the Iraq war and um you know, I went to a couple of panels and I was sort of trained to constr- as a constructivist or whatever and I was interested in security, but the, but that was where I decided, you know, actually there was going to be more of this international ethics angle because I stumbled upon a panel. I really, I mean, I, I mean that in every sense of the term. I, I didn't know I was going to it. Um, was it in a pub? But no, it, it wasn't. But it was, it was a panel with Howard Edelman, Tony Lang, and Tony Erskine. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think all, I think, I think all three were presenting a paper and, um, and, and Tony Erskine was presenting a paper on uh, combatant versus non-combatant, although she used the term non-combatant. Okay, yeah. Um, which I thought, oh gosh, I really got to get up to speed on how to pronounce things in the international ethics world. But um, but then that's also when... However Tony pronounces it. Right, right, it was probably right, yeah. Um, but then that, that was also the period of time where I was like, these folks are actually officers in the international ethics section. And so... Tony was, this would have been right around the time then that Tony was maybe, you know, as you know, and I know, being in the international ethics section and, and serving on the, the sort of governing board of it, you're, you, you start as secretary, you move to vice chair and chair. So I think she might have been vice chair and okay. maybe Bourbon was chair uh, at the time. <laughs> and I don't know if that, I, maybe that wasn't like things like that weren't even influencing you and, and your decision, but you just, or, or, or maybe you just, you just when hit it you, off when, with Tony. When yeah, you no, it first. was, I was, I was oblivious to that. Mm-hmm. I knew Aberystwyth, like all the books I was reading were by people from Aberystwyth. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, and it had been affirmed to me by friends that this was a great place to go and had a great kind of, it was a great academic environment. And so what you did in Aberystwyth at the time was you applied for the department and they assigned your supervisors. Okay. Now, you could kind of guide the process by, you know, meeting the would-be supervisor and maybe writing their stuff into your proposal. And so I'd met with Tony and we kind of, and there was some light work mm-hmm. went on in that way. But, um, I mean, uh, I, was, I didn't know a great deal about Tony. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she was still quite new to the discipline, so mm-hmm. she was considered, I suppose, a new member of staff at, mm-hmm. at, at Abra at the time. And I mean, she just immediately, you know, struck you as very impressive and professional. Well, and were there a lot, I mean, one of the, one of the issues you have, um, as a graduate student, graduate students always have this issue is, um, are you, you know, especially if you have a, a, a supervisor that's, that's, that's really good or, or you have a sense that they're going to be really good at what they do is that you're competing with other graduate students for their, sort of attention, right? Um, but if she's newer, maybe she hasn't established a sort of big cohort of graduate students yet that she's working with, or... Um, uh, had, and maybe it's different in the UK academy. I know I in the US had, that's a I calculation. I two peers who were working with Tony as well at the mm-hmm. time um, on kind of related issues, but didn't really think about it in terms of competition. Well, and because she would make time for it. I mean, she would make time yeah. to, to, to help supervise you it, as well, right? It just never really came up that way. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, the first year was kind of um, 
unusual in that way. Just, mm-hmm. I, you know, first year PhD, you're groping in the dark, right? You don't mm-hmm. know quite what you're doing. And, you know, Tony's approach to some questions just turns out to be a little bit different than maybe how, how I approach mm-hmm. them. Um, and, you know, I'm, she didn't know me, especially I didn't know her. So you have a kind of a, a um, professional, you know, a very professional, you meet a very professional relationship in that you meet at an allotted, you know, periodically, um, you know, once a month or once every three weeks or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, she was on leave for one of those semesters in my first year. So it took me a while to get warmed up to the PhD process. Um, it, it really did. Um, it took me maybe into the second year to get going. And in the second year... Um, Ian Clark came onto my supervision team mm. with Tony. Mm-hmm. Tony came back from leave. Ian got involved. Ian had also supervised Tony at mm. Cambridge. So they were very close mm. and worked very well together. And, you know, it was just great. Mm. And, and the more, the further I got into the project, the more the bond grew and the more I got out of them and the more, you know, everything just got better. Well, and then and then you also, I mean, it's obvious to me when I've, chatted with you with with other folks from Aber at the time that you all kind of influenced one another as well right so you had sort of a graduate cohort or at least a, a, a group a graduate community that yeah that, we had a fantastic group. and you would go out and you know chat about yeah. all kinds of things right and I mean, so every um I lived in a little kind of um neighborhood just outside well on one end of Aberystwyth mm-hmm. um Aberystwyth is tiny of course so I mean you know bear this in mind mm-hmm. but I lived on one side of the bridge um, where a guy called Darren Brunk lived who works now at the, with Oxfam mm-hmm. um, Nick Vaughan Williams Tom Lundborg mm-hmm. Edmund Fredingham um, Joe Nunes mm-hmm. and Sebastian Kempf and mm-hmm. a bunch of other people mm-hmm. who you know who you will know um, and at Columba Peoples as well. Mm-hmm. And in particular, what I remember is Nick Vaughan Williams, Tom Lundborg, and me, and sometimes Ed Fredingham and sometimes Darren, would go to a local kind of pub mm-hmm. on any given night about 10 o'clock, kind of when the day's work was done, and you'd go and you'd finish the day with a pint and a mm-hmm. chat. I mean, I learned so much because those guys were proper theorists. I mm-hmm. wasn't right. And, you know, it was, it was really... Uh, fertile, like we were, we were really engaged, and we would stay up late debating the merits of constructivism and all <laughs> yeah. this kind of stuff. Um. All right, so hey everyone, uh, that was my first part of my interview with Kian O'Driscoll at the University of Warwick. Uh, Kian's from again the University of Glasgow. We've been friends for a long time. It was a really enjoyable conversation, but it went on a little bit longer than the typical interviews that I'll have for this podcast. So we split it into two. So you'll hear the second part uh, next week on the Hasey Scholar podcast. But in the meantime, I hope everyone's doing well. It's the summer, at least here in North America. So hopefully you're all kind of relaxing, walking around with your dog, listening to this podcast, chilling a little bit, and um, tune in next week when I release part two of the interview with Keanu Driscoll. In the meantime, chill out, have a good time.
the good uh, he's a good governor right? yeah. yeah he is it's just the name you know? I know the poor guy there's like a bunch of people in the in the democratic um, field that like, they're good people but like they have no shot and yeah you really hope that like they run for other yeah. offices 